You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Good morning. It's good to be back at Cypress. I was here and did the last sermon in the Nehemiah series. I'm always a little amazed when I get invited back someplace. Because I can get invited almost anywhere once, right? It's a... Um, I'm really looking forward to this whole series. My wife and I attend the branch over in Los Alamitos, um, and it's great to be part of that body over there and part of this larger uh, body with several campuses. Uh, But I'm really excited about this series uh, on the the attributes of God, basically, his character, his roles, what he does, who he is, Um, because in part because we live in a time in which that's become more confusing to our culture. Uh, because it's pretty much become whatever I want God to be. In fact, uh, I've been in conversations occasionally where somebody said, well, my God would never... And when I'm sort of feeling my oats, I'll say, well, honestly, I don't care what your God would do. I care a lot about the God who actually exists, what he would do, right? I want to know who he is and his character because I'm staking my life on this thing. And so this series really takes us back to that core of who is this God who has revealed himself, uh, both in experiences and those recorded for us then in Scripture. Um, Last week, Pastor Mike introduced God the Father. It was appropriate, of course, because it was Father's Day. Um, But he reminded us that God is knowable, even if we can't know everything about him. And he is also near us. He's our help. He's limitless. Uh, But what that raised for me, the question, which I actually hope to get to answer a little this morning, is then if that's the Father that Mike was talking about, how do I get to know him or know him better? What's the best way to sort of enter into a relationship with this God as Mike described him? Uh, So this morning we're going to look at God the Holy Spirit's role as being the author of Scripture, because I'm convinced that it's in God's Word where we see God's character, His plan for us, His plan for the ages. It's it's all there in the book. We're going to do this by going through a passage in Paul's second letter to Timothy. So if you want to take that as a hint, you ought to be looking for Second Timothy. Um, if you're new to this whole Bible thing, if you start at the very last book of your Bible and go left, just a short ways, you'll find Timothy. If you start at the beginning with Genesis, you're going to have to go a long ways uh, to get to Second Timothy. Um, I have some favorite Bible books. Um, the Gospel of John is one of them, Ephesians is one of them, but the other one is Second Timothy. And maybe part of it's my age, but Second Timothy is the last correspondence we have from the Apostle Paul that the church felt was inspired by God and ought to be kept in this collection. And as a pastor, uh, I have been at the deathbed of a number of people. And I can tell you that when somebody knows they're dying, I mean, we're all dying, right? But when they've sort of been given a, an approximate date, in the conversation, what you tend to hear are the things that were really important to them. The things that really matter most. And 2 Timothy is that letter. It's Paul's letter to Timothy saying, because as far as we can tell, uh, Paul had known Jesus about 30 years at this point and Timothy about 15 of those. So roughly half the time that he'd known Jesus, he'd known Timothy, which is why he trusted him enough to send him off to some of the hot spots that were shaken down. Because, you know, not all churches are healthy and growing. Um, So just a little aside. But in this letter, he's basically saying to Timothy, these are the things that matter the most. Because he tells us at the end of the letter, I know it's done. This is his second imprisonment. It's not the fancy one where people got to come visit him. I mean, he was in the deep, dark, dank dungeon. 
And so these are the things that matter most. So for me, it's not that it's like more inspired or more important, but it's just, it's a good reminder for me. And so what we're going to do, and I hope that was a long enough introduction, to get you to chapter 3, because we're going to camp in verses 10 on through the end of what we call chapter 3, because again, chapters weren't there originally. In, so Now I think I'll start chapter 2. Um, but in, as we've broken this up so we can find things easier, at the beginning of chapter 3, this is the description of what people will be like in the last days. He says, they will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents. Can I get an amen? And ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others, have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what's good. They'll betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. And he says, stay away from people like that. Now, when he tags that little end at, ending, you know, stay away from people like Even though he said, this is what it's going to be like in the end days, the last times. He says, every generation is going to have this as an aspect of who they are as a culture. If they leave God out of the equation. If they try to do this thing on their own. So what Paul then does after describing these people in the last days who are also living in Timothy's days is to use two very short Greek words that basically we would translate, but you, in contrast. I don't know what you do with your Bible study, but look for all the comparisons and the contrasts. It's an easy way to do Bible study. Um, and in this, he, in the first one, shows up in verse 10, where he says, but you, in contrast to those that were just described, um, know all about my teaching. It's verse, the first part of verse 10. You, however, which in the NIV is you, however, but in the Greek it's but you, know all about my teaching. Now when Paul uses this word know all about, a lot of translations use it, follow my teaching. He's not simply talking about mimicking. Um, I was a Christian education major at Talbot, so I didn't have to take Greek. But those who know Greek tell me that the, the sense here is really not just sort of mimicking or following for a season. It's really owning it as your own. It's become your own. I have three adult children. Uh, they grew up as pastor's kids. All three of them love Jesus and, which is a little more rare, love the church. Right? And I can die a happy man as a result of that. But they, they really made it their own. Now, there are other things, like how one keeps one's car that it, they just didn't get from me. I mean, I, I get in their car and try to sit around all the leftover whatevers, and yes, they have kids, but so did we, right? All the detritus that's just, or detritus, however you pronounce it, that's just sort of laying around. They didn't get that. They, they are not, as Paul would say here to Timothy, they are not um, knowing all about my teaching about how one keeps one car. Now, it's true. Given, do I want them to have dirty cars and love Jesus? Or love Jesus and have dirty cars. You know, I will opt for them loving and following Jesus. But it's just to illustrate that point that things that we say we know and we've learned, we haven't really learned until it's become ours and it's incorporated in us. In fact, the Hebrew mindset was to know and not to do is not to know at all. Don't claim you know it until you're actually doing it. Right? So to, for those of you taking notes, to know and not to do is not to know at all. Yet. That doesn't mean you couldn't, right? But you just aren't there yet. So Paul here is contrasting the behavior of those who don't know God and says to Timothy, it ought to make a difference. But you know the teaching you got. 
you have followed my teaching. Look at the second part of verse 10. Uh, you follow my teaching out of which flows. Now that's my paraphrase. I think that's the, the intent as he goes into this list. Because you follow my teaching, it's out of that teaching, out of that doctrine that flows my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience with aggravating people, my love for both God and people, and my endurance, which is patience with aggravating circumstances. For all of you who came this morning wondering, what's the difference between endurance and patience? That's it. One is patience with aggravating people. The other is in, in, uh, being patient with aggravating circumstances. How many have both of those going on anywhere? In the, yeah, okay. Just wanted to know I was among friends. Okay, so if he had stopped there, he could have written an inspirational bestseller and had been in all the bookstores owned by Christians that are frequented by Christians. Uh, but he doesn't stop there. He says, you follow my teaching, which not only results in my life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, but also my persecutions, my suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? And he tags Lystra in there, not only because there was an event there that was important, he was stoned, but because Timothy grew up there. Timothy would have been aware of that. Um, because we're going to find out in a minute, Timothy was already a follower of God at the point that Paul showed up. Timothy would have said, I know all about this stuff. I know the persecutions you endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And Paul doesn't stop there. You know, like some pastors, they should stop too soon, right before they convict us, right? Paul doesn't do that. Look at verse 12. He says, it's not just you, Timothy, that is following this and has made it your own. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, maybe various degrees, depending on the culture and the place. But at the very least, you'll find there's this tension between you and the people who don't yet know Jesus. Because Paul here says, if you want to live godly... Now, if you don't want to live godly, you probably will avoid some of this. But if you want to live godly, you will suffer persecution. And he's simply echoing what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, again, my favorite Gospel, uh, chapter 15, verse 18. When the world hates you, remember, it hated me before it hated you. The world would love you if you belonged to it, but you don't. I chose you to come out of the world, and so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they'll persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. The people of the world will hate you because you belong to me, for they don't know God who sent me. That's the reason. They're still broken. And there's been no remedy for that. Now, in this statement, Jesus is assuming a couple of things to be true of his followers, that they would be in the world, that is, living among people who don't know God, and they have commerce, they go to places to eat, they hang out, they got neighbors, whatever. But that at the same time, they would not be of the world. That is, they would reflect a life of following God, not of following whatever it is I wanted to do. Rich Mullins has a great line in one of his songs where he said, people said, just follow your nose. But I discovered that every time I turned my nose, the direction changed. And they said, well, just follow your heart. And he said, well, that just took me into my chest. You know, th those are not good guides for how to live one's life. And our world gets confused when we live for Jesus. Now, here, for those of you who are looking, how do I avoid this persecution? Because I'm not a big fan of pain or discomfort or people not liking me. I'm a middle child. I like to be liked, right? So how can I avoid this persecution? Well, I think there's two ways, for those of you taking notes, that you can avoid persecution. One is to both be not of the world and not in the world. Right? 
where you're in your holy huddle, you've got your Christian friends who only own Christian pets and shop at Christian stores and wear Christian jewelry and, and only talk with people who are going to agree with you, right? So if you're not of the world, which is a good thing, you love Jesus, but you're not, also not in the world, if you, you have no conversation with these folks, how are they ever going to hear it? I guess stuff lives on the internet now forever, but I mean, they're certainly not going to find somebody who actually knows Jesus to talk to. If you are not, there's no impact without contact, right? You got to be there. Somebody with skin on. God loved us enough to become one of us because he knew that after all that talking in the Older Testament, he still needed to show up with skin on and say, this is what it looks like, right? Because we're slow learners. The other way to avoid conflict if you don't like the other one because you don't want to be all by yourself is to both be in the world and of the world. Because then you look exactly like all your neighbors and they will never ask you a question about God because they won't even know you know Him. Right? So both be in the world, right? You're doing the commerce or whatever, but also of the world where your values, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way you raise your kids, the way you treat your spouse is exactly like everybody that's around you. And I guarantee you will not be persecuted because they won't know. I mean, when they go hunting for Christians, they won't... Oh, he couldn't be one. Right? So, there you go. There's your advice if you want to avoid persecution. You don't have to pay extra for that one. Okay. The other thing he goes on then here, again, creating a contrast, because he's, he's assuming that you do actually want to live godly in Christ Jesus. That's a key phrase in this passage. And if you do want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and therefore the result is you may be persecuted, the contrast is while evil men and imposters, people who pretend to be followers of Jesus, will actually go from bad to worse in the, the sense there is progressively. So it's not like I'll just be a little bad and then I'll stop. There's this progression that happens. And any of us who have lived in that wandering season know that. Right? We didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, I just think I'm going to ruin all my relationships and really mess up my life and just stop following Jesus for a while and then I'll come back. Right? Nobody wakes up thinking that. It's always the little choices along the way that put us in that place. And we'll actually address that in, in a minute or so. Don't hold me to a minute. It's probably longer than that. So, how do I live a godly life rather than going from bad to worse? I don't want to be that guy. I really do want to live godly. That, that is the desire of my heart, at least on my best days. How do I do that? Here's the second contrast and the second but you, and that begins in verse 14. And it's by abiding in the truth. First part of verse 14. But as for you, continue. That's the word abide. Be at home in marinate yourself there in what you've learned and have become convinced of. So he's back to his teaching, which was based on the Older Testament as well as what the Holy Spirit had been revealing to Paul. He says, if you will be at home there, then you won't end up being like those evil men and imposters who go from bad to worse. You will be like those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about why he, there's sort of an argument here for Timothy. He says, look, you know who taught you. This didn't come out of nowhere. Second half of verse 14. Because you know from whom you learned it. And first of all, I think he's implying himself. Again, I mentioned how long they had known each other and all the stuff they'd done together. And so he's basically saying to Timothy, don't walk away from it now. You've walked through this life with me. You know what this is about. But he says, it's not just me. Verse 15, he says, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. And that's the core. See, because Paul's doctrine was built on the Holy Scriptures. The Older Testament, and then as we'll talk about, there was the New Testament 
and the final testament being added it says you've known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in christ jesus now it's interesting to me i don't know if it'll be interesting to you but that at the moment he's saying you've known from infancy the holy scriptures he's referring to the older testament that everything up through malachi genesis to malachi was enough for someone to come to salvation in god because of what are revealed about god's character and his pursuit of relationship and reminding us we can't do it ourselves we need a substitute we need a sacrifice they're able to make you wise now just a quick word uh, about there's an overarching theme coming for all the campuses this next year about how this is not something we do on our own we are part of a family can i just ask you please to pay really close attention as we go through this next year not that you don't all the other times but because in our culture, one of the things that's countercultural is to realize, even with all of the podcasts and all of the sermons and all of the C- CDs, see that dates me, uh, that I'm not supposed to sit in my room and have my personal devotions exclusively. I need to be with other people who can help me understand this, who can say, when I, you know, when I say, I think it might mean, and they'll go, yeah, but how does that compare to what he said over in Deuteronomy? And how does that compare to what he said over in the letter to the Hebrew Christians? And you, know, you just, you need people. Because the irony of self-deception is that by its very definition, you don't know what's happening. Right? So if you're just studying and having your quiet time, even the phrase, my bias here, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, but just make sure it's not private. It was always meant to be personal. It was never meant to be private. I share it with the people who also know Jesus, but I share it with my neighbors and my friends. And we as a, as a culture have just said, it's all about me and my precious. I mean, we all go to that stuff that I own. It's me and my and mine. And Paul here is saying, look, you, you knew it from, from infancy in, in a family context with only, what we would say, only the Older Testament. And here he's certainly echoing the great Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, the promise-making, promise-keeping God who is to his people everything that he is, our Elohim, who is the strong God, and therefore he can keep his promises because he's got the goods. Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh, your Elohim, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But not just you. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. But then verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. What I do and what I think is saturated in the revealed word of God. Write them on the door frame of your house so that no matter whether you're coming or going, you're reminded there is a God and you're not him. Paul says, that's what you grew up with, Timothy. So don't walk away from it now, and please pass this along to the churches that you're working with. Remember, this is his last letter, right? It's like whatever else you do, Timothy, make sure you've got your finger in the book. He says not only knowing where it came from, but uh, knowing, sorry, who it came from, but where it came from. Because Paul would argue, I think, and rightfully so from the words he's used, that it isn't just that you trusted these people who gave you this information, because they can be deceived. It's knowing where it came from. It came from God. People didn't make this stuff up. They didn't sit around and say, you know, I think I'll start a new religion. How do we want that to look? And he does this in the first part of verse 16 by saying, all scripture is God-breathed. It came from God. 
Now, you could actually translate this, all, scriptures, all scripture inspired by God is useful, but there is a, there's a connector here. There's two things going on. It is both inspired and useful, right? And I would think it would actually be saying, it's inspired, therefore it's useful, right? It, that's why it makes a difference, because it's not just the latest novel, etc. And it's all scripture, both the Older Testament and the New Final Testament. I just threw up a quick slide here just to remind us that Paul understood that, there, that God was revealing some new stuff and it was being inscripturated, it was being written down, but it was being inspired by God just the same as the Old Testament. Paul would certainly be including that, the sacred writings of the Older Testament, but also what you've learned from me. He commanded that his writings be read in public worship, which is what Hebrew scriptures were done. He claims to speak in the name of and with the authority of Christ. He calls his message the word of God. And then Peter over in Second Peter actually equates Paul's writings with Scripture. He says, hey, they twist Paul's writings, just like they do with all the other Scripture. What? And then Paul, in earlier, actually in 1 Timothy, quotes, has two quotes. One's from the uh, Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, and the other one's from Luke's account. He's the only one who records it, from Luke's account of the Gospels, and refers to them both as Scripture. So Paul knew what was going on here. God is speaking, and then he's going to close this thing. So it's both... It's not just the Old Testament, the Older Testament that's inspired, it's both. Now, this is a, a word, inspired, that has a very specific theological meaning. Um, a lot of words in Scripture are not fancy words. Sabbath, for instance, just means stop. It was used all the time, right? To tell us die from the cross, it is finished. It was what they stamped on your bill when you, when you finally paid off what you owed the guy in the market, right? They were not initially theological words. They were just taken out of the marketplace. This is not one of those. Inspired is a word that they probably think Paul made up because they can't find it in any other writings of the time. And it literally means God breathed. In fact, inspired is an unfortunate translation because to inspire is to bring in. I mean, if anything, you just said it's inspired, right? Because it came out from God. He initiated it. He was the one doing the talking. Now, he was able to do it without abusing uh, the person's personality or the vocabulary they would have known as a fisherman or a learned scholar, all that kind of stuff. But it was the very and is the very word of God, putting down in writing. And Peter, when he describes it, he describes it not as God breathed, but as being carried along. In Second Peter, uh, chapter one, it says we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is during the transfiguration. You can read that this afternoon. Saying, this is my son with whom, or whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made even more certain. Because here's God in the flesh being transfigured in the presence. Moses and Elijah show up. So it just solidifies everything we knew about the prophets and the prophecies. And you will do well to pay attention to it. Why? Because it's God's... This is God Almighty we're talking about here. Who spoke. And pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. He didn't sit down and look at the times and go, you know, what I think God's probably going to do next? And then write it down. It was... The prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever done a fireman's carry? Right? I mean, just kind of carried along. You're, you're helping, you're sort of participating, but you are not the primary mover in that. So, just a quick slide on 
the fact that all of the Testaments, both the Older Testament and the New Testament, the Final Testament, Christ is the center of it. Let me point out, the Hebrew Scriptures, for instance, the Older Testament, pointed to and prophesied of the coming Messiah. The Gospels tell of the birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Messiah. Acts tells what Jesus continued to do and teach through his followers. The letters, like Timothy and Philemon and Titus and whatever, uh, explain the significance of Jesus to the individual Christians and the church collectively. And then Revelation reveals that Christ shares the throne with God now and will come to bring time to an end and to judge the world. It's what we call Christocentric. Christ is at the center. And we also know this on good authority because on the road to Emmaus, Jesus spent all that time starting with the law and the prophets and just said, there I was, there I was coming. This, is, this shouldn't take you by surprise. This is what this is all about. And then Paul goes on to talk about, it's not only who gave it to you and where it come from, came from, which is God, all those are important, but it's also what does it do? Now, I need some volunteers. Do we have any junior hires or high schoolers who didn't end up going to camp? I feel sorry for you. Or elementary even. Yeah, come on. Come on, come on, come on. Any other? Come, keep, you don't have to raise your hand. Just come. Right? If you're in the back row, it'll take you about two minutes, but you come. You say, what are we going to do? I'm going to give you some literature. We're going to pray for you. No, that's my very bad Billy Graham impression. Um, come on up to the stage. Right? More help? Come on. More volunteers? Come on. There you go. Thank you. Whew. You're eating up my time. I only got six minutes. Actually, Garrick said I could preach as long as I want, but you're leaving at 11.36. So, All right. So here's what we're going to do. This is one of those places. He says in verse 16, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman, the person of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this is where Paul picks up four words that are not fancy theological words. They were words that were common at the time. And the first one is teaching. And teaching is basically the ABCs, the beginnings. If you can remember back when you first became a Christ follower, you thought, how am I ever going to get this stuff? And people would just say, well, here's where you begin. God is God and there's no other. And, but he's in three persons. I don't understand it, but that's true. I mean, people helped you, right? So I have grandkids now, but I also had kids. That's how you get grandkids, by the way. Um, and ABCs, if you, can you act like a toddler? Just kind of take the first steps, you know, it's a little, right? Okay, now you can stop. But that was really good. See, ABCs, like we're helping to homeschool um, our oldest granddaughter, Raya, she's six. We also, at different seasons in our kids' lives, homeschooled them, and then we sent them off to public school and private school and heaved a sigh of relief. But um, in that, when, when Raya is learning to read, and these are the books that have, you know, like three-letter words, and there's only four of them in the entire book, and I don't know how they string them together to actually have a story. Lots of pictures. But if Raya gets the word wrong, do I yell at her? No. I just say, well, actually, let's sound it out, right? Let's work it through. See, that's the ABCs. He says it's profitable for getting the basics, for learning. Now, the next word, rebuking, so walk with me a little bit more. Walk this way, walk this way. Now, start to drift to your right. Okay, now stop right there. Because how many of you have ever drifted off the path of following Jesus? Anybody? Okay, good. I'm, in, I'm among friends. Um, because the word rebuke simply means point out where you got off the road. Right? It's not a fancy word. It just means you were going along and you made some choices and now you find yourself, the trail's over here, the path's over here, I'm over here. But how good is it for God to just say, uh-uh-uh, you did it wrong, and then just stop there. Right? 
I mean, drive-by guilting. It's like, no, I, I need to know what to do about this now because I actually love you, God. And I, 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 I mean, there was some intentionality in it, but this is not how I want my life to be. So the correcting word that's here just simply means, how do I get back on the path? So kind of do a U-turn, come over here. Now don't go path yet, back to the path yet because you're not there. We're going to get there. So correcting is, not only has he told me how I got off the path, he now tells me how to get back on the path. So if I've sinned, he says, confess your sins. If my sin involves somebody else, he says, go make it right for them, with them, as much as possible. Romans 12, 8, one of my favorite verses, as much as it lies within you, be at peace with all people, right? Because some people aren't going to do it. But, but see, God didn't leave us wondering, now, how do I get out of this? How do I come back? My kids humbled my wife and I when they were discussing why they still follow Jesus and some of their friends don't. And one of them, I don't remember which one, said, I always knew there was a way back. Something about the way Sharon primarily parented them, probably. But they knew there was always a way back, both with God and with us. And that's what the correcting is. It's how do I get back on this thing? So now join me back on the path. And here's the fun part. The training in righteousness is a word that simply meant go on to maturity right? Now you're past addition and subtraction. You're getting into geometry. You're getting into calculus. You can tell I'm not a math guy. Thank you very much, by the way. Let's give him a big hand. Now, it's true that there are seasons in my life where I feel like I'm doing this, right? Can I get an amen as I straighten out? Um, But then I also have these seasons where I'm actually making more progress down the road, right? Because I'm being trained in righteousness. I'm learning something from all of that. God doesn't waste any of those lessons if we pay attention. But think of the grace of God in giving us the word of God. So we didn't have to make this up as we go along. We didn't have to wonder what this is all about. It's here's how you get started. Oh, that's where you got off. Let me help you figure out how to get back on this thing. And how about we go on to maturity? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you like to... You'll never be sinless, but wouldn't you like to sin less? Right? And that's what this is about. So it's not only God-breathed, it's God-breathed with a purpose that we would become mature in Jesus Christ, which goes back to that phrase, those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus. If that's your goal. Now, if it's not your goal, stop listening. Because that's what this passage is all about. If that's really your heart's desire. Even if you live that in fits and and sputters like I do, I've at least got my nose pointed in the right direction most of the time. Right? And I'm learning as I go along. That brings us to the two questions that say, oh, good, he's almost done. The first one is, so what? This is the implication. I would just say, God loved you enough to put it in writing. Right? Because he could have just revealed himself to certain individuals. They live out the rest of their life. They die, the stories don't get passed on, we're done. But God not only inspired it, but he superintended that it would be recorded and passed on so that we, in the 21st century, would still have the word of God. And because he loved us enough and didn't leave us alone on our own to try and figure out what it means to follow God and to be in relationship with him, therefore, now what? What do I do with this? I think from this passage we get two things. One, adopt God's word as your own. Stop living off of somebody else's faith. Stop living off of somebody else's Bible study. Stop living off of somebody else's podcast. Learn from those things, but make it your own. Live it out. Work it out. 
God the Holy Spirit knew exactly what we needed to become a child of God and then to grow in that relationship. And then he recorded it for us. So don't mimic somebody else's faith. Just get after it. And then the second thing that Paul talks about is abiding in God's Word, being at home in it, right? Just, just marinate in it. It's where I always go because I know where it came from. I know what it does. So in summary, I'd say those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus are those who abide in God's Word, resulting in teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, which will then result in being equipped for every good work. You want to do good works? You don't just get up and grab your bootstraps and go for it. You allow the Holy Spirit to make the changes in your life to where it really is good work because it honors God and it helps the people that you're involved with. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for loving us enough to put it in writing. Thank you for the challenges to my own heart about continuing to to just be in the word and let it become how I think and how I respond, and even showing me how when I don't do that, how I can make it right, how I can come back around and, and move forward. I don't have to get stuck someplace because you've told us how to walk in relationship with you. Father, I pray this congregation, the branch where we attend, all churches throughout the world would desire to live godly in Christ Jesus and in a way that if persecution comes, it's not a surprise because we are in the world, but we're not of it. In Christ's name, amen.